Listener Production. During COVID lockdowns, Anna Spargo Ryan rediscovered activities she hadn't participated in for ages. And then for two years, she went to book launches and birthday drinks. She saw her favourite bands play. And then Anna said goodbye all over again to the things she loves, unable to participate when they moved offline back into the real world. Anna Spago Ryan is an award-winning author and writer whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The Good Weekend, The Saturday Paper and more. She's a mum of two who was born in Adelaide and now lives in Melbourne. Anna is also an agoraphobe who rarely leaves the relatively short radius around her home. Anna's life, rather like her new book, A Kind of Magic, can be dark and difficult. But it is also funny and warm, hopeful and joyous and full of love. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Bron will be here and we'll bring you The Weekend List where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with Anna Spargo Ryan. And just a heads up that this conversation does talk about mental illness and it may be difficult listening for some of you. Anna Spargo Ryan, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for having me. You were born and you grew up in Adelaide. You lived there in your childhood. Tell me about your family choosing to leave Adelaide and what that experience was for you. Uh, It was a horrible experience for me. I try not to dwell on how horrible it was anymore because I did hold on to that feeling for a long, long time. Yeah. My mum got a job in Melbourne. She was in her late 40s and I was 17 and I have a younger brother and sister and it was an amazing job opportunity that she had. But being 17, you know, I didn't care. I was like, my friends are here, my boyfriend is here, I've always lived here. I had gone to the same school since I was five and by then was at the end of year 11, nearly finished school. It was just a bit like, I don't know how to be torn away from here. Why are you doing this? Yeah. Which was not, you know, an extraordinarily self-centered way of looking at it because it did change the trajectory of my mum's life and then all of our lives. But I felt and still feel homesick. I, Melbourne is such a big city and Adelaide is a, you know, an oversized country town, but full of culture and just the exact right place for me, I think. And so I miss it. I haven't been there for a long time because I'm a very anxious person and I'm not good at traveling. So it lives on in my mind as almost as the place that it was when I left. You are someone who is incredibly generous with your own thoughts and feelings in your writing and your new book is a kind of magic. For those who haven't had a chance to pick up a copy yet, can you tell us a little bit I'm making it sound like I don't know what it's about, but can you tell <laughs> can you tell the people listening a little bit about what the book is? I believe you haven't even picked it up and read the blurb. How um, rude! And now I'm going to ask all these insightful questions as if I have just read to it. prove it, just yeah. as if I have. <laughs> Someone clever has written those for you. This is all a lie. Jamis definitely read it. Uh, <laughs> it's about. Yeah, we should make that very clear. <laughs> I promise. I promise. I have. It's a memoir. It's sort of a blended memoir, so it has quite a lot of research in it as well. And it's about my life with anxiety, but it's also 
a discovery process. So I've always written about mental health. Since I was a teenager, I've written about mental health on the internet. Like, try to stop me from doing that. But this was, okay, I know how I feel as an adult. Where did it come from? Why does it happen? And what can I do to feel better about it now? That's what I was trying to figure out. Also, I wanted to reflect on the fact that I have had a very excellent life and how mental illness, serious mental illness and an excellent life can coexist and what makes that possible and where optimism comes from. So it's all of those things. It's some parts of it, I think, are, you know, are pretty grim, pretty dark. But the overarching feedback that I get from people is that it's funny. They go, I read your book. I laughed so much. I'm like, well, the fact that it's a book about how miserable I have been in my life and that it makes you laugh is amazing. That's, I mean, that's what I could never as a, maybe even 10 years ago, 10 years ago, if I had thought one day I'm going to write about this and it will make people laugh, that would have been enough to get me through the darkest time in my life. You said that in part the book is a discovery project. Hmm. How much of the discovery happened during the process of working on the book and how much of it had happened beforehand? I suppose what I'm getting at is did you sit down to write the book with the fully formed thoughts and conclusion in your head about how you felt and the answers to these questions of, of where mental illness comes from or was that something that came about in the process of writing and researching? No, the the only plan I had at the beginning was basically to just write down every terrible thing that had happened <laughs> to me. You know, I Great plan. Yeah, I'd sold the book um without any sort of structure or plan based on a tweet. I said, "Will someone please let me write a mental health book?" That's how no. I sold it. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The tweet is still there. I have it bookmarked so I can look at it sometimes when I'm like, I'm not good at anything. Nobody cares what I'm doing. Like, well, there was this though. That is like the best example of asking the universe and receiving. That's what it was. It was like a shoot your shot kind of tweet day. And I, yeah, and I said something like, I would write a really good mental illness book. Will someone please let me write it? And yeah, the book went to auction after that. Wow. I think I had 11 different offers. Wow. Yeah. So that was pretty affirming, you know. I was very grateful, but I didn't know what I wanted it to be. You know, I knew how I felt and I knew what I liked writing about in relation to mental health. And I had written a lot of mental health pieces. I had, um, at the risk of bragging, had won the Horn Prize for my writing on mental health. And so I knew I could do that but I didn't know what the structure of the book was. So I just started writing down everything that I could remember that had happened to me. And then I started to do some research into how, I guess, how anxiety is formed. And then that led to how memory is made. I had also in parallel been doing some work with my therapist. I've been in therapy for like 25 years, which is definitely helpful in terms of trying to be introspective. Yeah. Like, you're like I'm, I've been trained to look inside and see what it means. So I was also doing some work with her on memory and how memory works and the impact that memory has on who we believe we are as people, how it helps to, or the role it plays in forming our identity. And so I was doing both of those things at once. And I was 
writing about my past and things that had happened to me and learning about the impact that the past has on us as adults. And as I did both of those things together, just started drawing the most amazing conclusions. I was writing and I was going, God, I'm so angry and everything's terrible and doesn't life suck all of the time? And then also going, oh, when I was a child and people said, you're bad and lazy and naughty, I took all of that on and believed that that's who I was as a person. But now I understand that maybe that's not who I am as a person and that actually maybe I'm more like this as a person. And maybe the things I'm now writing about in my book a part of that child who was being told things that maybe weren't entirely true about her and the fact that now I'm an anxious adult spawned from these conflicting feelings that I had, which were I'm trying to do my best. I think I'm going okay. Oh, I'm naughty and bad. Oh, the things I do are always wrong. Oh, and that continues into adulthood. So what happened in the end was I wrote this whole book, which was sort of quite angry, I think. I'd also included all these bits of research that I was doing. So I was doing those things side by side, like write a chapter about how angry I am and then write a chapter about how memory works and then write one about how borderline personality disorder works. And and by the time I got to the end of writing that book, I had changed as a person. I understood so much better why I felt the way I did, why that was unfair on myself, why I should be a bit kinder to myself about it, And then in the end, felt like a much calmer, happier, better informed, more balanced kind of person. So I wrote the whole book again. So the answer to your question is, no, I didn't have an idea when I started, but the second time I did it. The second time you did. (laughs) I knew exactly what I wanted to say. Okay. I have so many questions as a result of what you've (laughs) just said. The first one is, who and where were those messages coming from when you were a child that you internalised? And now that you have that perspective and reflection, were they messages that were constant and repeated or were they few and far between that you hung on to? Mm, That's a really interesting question. I think the nature of memory makes it hard to know. Yeah, exactly the answer to that, but they felt like they were repeated often. I mean, like a lot of, especially women my age, I'm 40, who've been diagnosed with ADHD. I was a kid who couldn't concentrate, didn't finish anything, disrupted the class, talked too much, didn't seem to be engaged, you know, all these things. And so teachers and parents and other adults in my life often seemed to say to me that all of that was bad and wrong. Like, why can't you just sit still? Why can't you just finish this? Why are you disrupting the class? Why? And from my perspective, I didn't understand what I was doing that was wrong because I was just, you know, behaving the way that I understood to behave. And I, I didn't think I was acting out because that was just the way that my brain worked. But hearing that over and over from Especially, I think, when you are trying your best. Yeah. Sometimes when you do something bad and someone goes, that's bad, you're like, yeah, fair enough. But if you're trying really hard, and I was the kind of kid who really wanted to, you know, achieve a lot and be the best and, you know, know how to spell hard words and know how to read long books. And so I was doing that and I was being told 
that I was naughty and bad and getting sent out of class a lot and made to feel like I was different from the other kids in good and bad ways. My school, to its enormous credit, had a lot of extension programs for kids. So I was also doing like an after-school research project with my school principal when I was six and, and those sorts of things that also were kind of othering, even though they were yeah. also meant to be an extension and to keep my brain active and all this. It made me feel like it didn't matter what I did, it was going to be the wrong thing or it was somehow not going to fit in with what everybody else was doing. And yeah, that came from teachers and parents and aunties and grandparents. And it was just, uh, I think by the time I was about 12, that felt inherent to who I was as a person Mm. and it was very hard to shake. And so I didn't want to try because it would always be wrong. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I think about my own child, as I think a lot of parents do when they hear stories of, of someone's childhood and I think about the times where I've said, what did you just do? And he goes, oh. I was really rude, wasn't I? And you're like, mm-hmm. And he goes, sorry. But he knew. There was a bit of him yeah. that goes, yeah, that I, did push, I did push it. I did push it. Sorry. Like, oops, won't do it again. Uh, probably mm. will do it again, but says he won't do it again. But <laughs> yeah. there's a difference between that that knowledge and a level of deliberateness compared mm. to a, a kid who is just being who they are because that's how mm. their brain works and being told again and again you're doing something wrong. It makes perfect sense that to a kid that becomes, well, you're something wrong. Yes. Yeah, it it goes from being that thing you did was bad to you're bad very quickly. You don't know what it is that you need to change about your behaviour to make an adult happy. And when you don't have that sort of skill to be able to reflect on what it really is that they mean and are saying, it just becomes what you know about yourself. And when I started going to the therapist I see now, which was about, it's just before COVID, so about three years ago, all the words that I used to describe myself were the same words that adults used to describe me when I was a child. And it wasn't for probably two years after I started seeing her that I said, I, had, I remember we had a session where I went in and I said, those words that people used to describe me, which were selfish, ungrateful, ungenerous. They don't feel true to me anymore. I could feel that they weren't connected to the core of myself anymore. And uh, that was really a really profound moment for me to go, I can attribute my own choice of words to who I know and believe I am as a person. And the book was a big act of trying to discover why. What is it about what happened when I was a child? Because for all intents and purposes, had a very lovely childhood. I lived in Adelaide in the eastern suburbs with two parents who are still married, been married for 52 years, with loving grandparents, with seven cats. And (laughs) I went to art classes and I went to ballet classes and I, you know, it was on paper an extraordinarily easy and beautiful, perfect childhood. I was friends with all the kids in my street. We had a pool. Like it was perfect. So what could have happened that meant that I had all of these core beliefs that were negative about myself? And as I wrote the book, it's like, oh, okay, I get it. I mean, the fact that my parents were very anxious 
meant that they were emotionally unavailable to me. I felt like I wasn't able necessarily to go to them with a problem because they were so anxious themselves. So if I needed something from them that I knew would stress them out, I didn't ask. And that led to a sense of emotional unavailability. It contributed to my feeling of being abandoned, even though, you know, I wasn't literally abandoned. But emotional unavailability feels like being abandoned to a child. And so as I grew up, I thought I can't rely on people to be there for me. And so I need to cling on to them. The other part of that is a child will have two main kind of reactions to that feeling of abandonment, which are then (laughs) classified as attachment disorders. So you might be overly attached, have an anxious attachment disorder, or you might reject attachment and be avoidant, have an avoidant attachment style. And I became just a stage five clinger, just like the only way I can avoid people abandoning me is to hold on to them as rigorously as I can. And that has been a key factor in all the relationships I've had as an adult. Learning about why helped me to let go of that feeling now as an adult. And being able to speak directly to my childhood self helped me to comfort her to know that she was doing the best that she could. And so therefore, as an adult, I could let go of all of the shame that I felt as a child. Like I'm trying, why do people hate me? Why is everybody angry with me? Why am I getting it wrong all the time? And I actually sat with myself in my mind and my therapist next to my little self who had got kicked out of class sitting in the playground on a swing alone, sat in the swing next to her and kind of went, hey, why are you out here? She was like, because I'm naughty. I was like, do you know, I know you're doing your best. And that was a momentous change, shift for me. Like here's an adult, because I'm an adult, a a person in sort of this position of power that I had felt as a child always rejected me. Adults didn't like me. Here's one telling me that I'm okay. And it sounds sort of, I don't know, mystical and stupid, but it made such a big difference to me. It changed how I felt about myself as an adult because I was changing the foundations that my adult identity was built on. Thank you for sharing that. That is um, <laughs> that is really extraordinary to hear and because it makes me think of that phrase that is so often used for people when they're going through a difficult time and they're experiencing anxiety or depression or whatever it might be, and they're told this too shall pass, like this mm. will not last forever. And I remember saying that to myself in periods of, of really extreme anxiety, like this cannot last forever. It is. I don't mm. know when it's going to end, but it's going to end. And having to sit with that realisation of actually this is something different and it's not just going to go away tomorrow and I'll wake up feeling better. This is this is far mm. more complex and the work to do to address it is far more complex. Mm. I can imagine yep. that must have been com- completely overwhelming before it was freeing. Yeah, absolutely. I think chronic mental illness is something that society gets really wrong. It doesn't always go away. It's not always transient. How do you live a full and beautiful life and be mental at the same time. And it's completely possible, but society tells you that you shouldn't try to do that. You should try to get over the feelings. You should try not to have those feelings. And if you still have them, 
you're not trying hard enough to not have them. And I think I realized after two decades of therapy when I still had them, like, hey, it's not because, once again, not because I'm not trying hard enough. This is who I am as a person. What can I do about it? How can I live with a chronic illness and be happy? And some days I'm not. Some days I stay in bed for the whole day and just feel bad for myself. And that's a part of the illness. And that's okay. And not to be down on myself for not trying hard enough. That letting go of not trying hard enough is a common factor in pretty much everything that has made me feel better. This is the best I can try. And that has to be enough. It's not just enough. It is necessarily enough. That's all I can do. And therefore, that's fine. And yeah, it was overwhelming before it was helpful. It was very difficult. The grieving process of believing and recognizing that I won't ever get better and then shifting my thought process to that's not my ambition anymore to get better was very hard emotionally. Okay, well, that's not my plan anymore. I had imagined that I would be, you know, one day I would be fixed and I would be able to do everything that I can't do at the moment and I would feel better all of the time and I would never go through periods of just feeling like I was going to fly off the earth or that I couldn't get out of bed or uh, letting go of that ambition. Yeah, it was terribly difficult. But once I did, I felt much more sure of my place in the world. This is who I am which is a hard thing to feel with identity disorders. That's sort of yeah. the, the core thing of an identity disorder is not really understanding where you fit and what, your, what that fixed thing is that grounds you to the world. And so once I had some hold on that, it was quite transformative. Yeah, but a lot of people have asked me when, since the book came out like about a cure. Yeah. Are you looking for a cure or do you wish you could be cured? Or, and in the past, I would have said that I would love to be cured. But what I would really love is to just be able to live in a society that supports every kind of person's needs. And that, that is a kind of cure. Mm. You know, the illness is not gone, but it doesn't make me worse to have an illness. It just makes it harder to fully participate because, you know, the structures are not set up for me or for For other people with different kinds of chronic illnesses. That's what I would like. I would like to be able to fully participate and to come back to COVID. That was a time where I felt as though it was easier for me to fully participate because it was remote, because I was invited and it didn't take long after it was decided that COVID had finished. It didn't take long for that to disappear where people would go, okay, well, now you can come into the office two days a week or now all of our book launches are not streamed online anymore or We're not accommodating remoteness anymore because we don't need it. That was a thing we needed for COVID. We don't anymore. "Mm, Some of us still need it. Yeah. And really appreciated it. And it helped us to, you know, lockdown was obviously terrible and COVID obviously terrible. But the fact that I could participate was a revelation for me. Like, oh, I have been shut away for so long and now I'm sort of here being part of things. And it was amazing.
you and I met before um, the pandemic and I remember mm. talking to you about the fact that you are an extrovert who loves being with people and having conversations and engaging with people and that you found it difficult that you couldn't engage in a writer's festival or an event or whatever it might be if you didn't feel comfortable going so far away from your house or travelling. Mm. So I imagine that, that COVID gave you that sense of being on the same even yeah. playing field as everyone else because everyone was was at home. What has the exit from that experience felt like? Because it's almost like you you got given, I think the word you used was an invitation, you got given an invitation mm. to be involved and now that's been revoked again. That's actually, that's exactly what it feels like. <sighs> I had a book launch last month and, 100 and about 110 people came and it was close to my house because that's where I can go. And a lot of people were there. It was a mix of people I already knew, people I knew on Twitter who I hadn't met before and strangers. And lots of those people came up to me and said, are you okay? Really concerned. Like, are you all right? This is a lot of people. Mm. And I at first didn't understand why they were asking. I was like, yeah, what do you mean? They're like, well, you know, you're anxious and this is, yeah, it's crowded and and there are strangers here, and I'm like, I love strangers. Give them to me. Where are they? Bring them here. It was the first uh, time since those COVID-related activities had ended that I had been able to demonstrate to somebody how much I want to be included. Mm. Like here I am. I want to talk to all of you, and I want to. I want to do a Q and A in front of everybody, and I want to share my ideas and I want other people to share their ideas with me and I really like being part of this and it felt when it ended as though exactly what you said the invitation was being revoked it felt like a rejection like well your input is no longer your input actually your input was never important enough for us to make any sort of compromise on how we did it and now that the people that we do value don't need this anymore it's gone and we don't need you or value you enough to make that possible. When the pandemic began, as you know, I'd been really physically, quite seriously physically unwell for the sort of two years prior to that. And while I wasn't having acute treatment anymore, I was still getting used to the right drugs and trying to feel some semblance of of the wellness that I that I felt previously. Yeah. And I had a similar experience, I think, during those two years of going the the simple fact of not having to commute into the city to be part mm. of something, which for me was physically, completely physically draining, meant that I was more productive and I could do more mm. things and be part of more things because I could do them from bed. I could say, I'll take that meeting, but I'm going to turn my camera off and I could be unwell and still do this thing I loved, which was work. And, you know, I had the the benefit of of my health improving through the pandemic, which meant that mm. by the time the lockdowns were over, I was able to participate a, a bit better, not the way I used to be, but better than better than I, I was going into the pandemic. And I, I'm trying to wrap my head around what it would have felt like if I if I hadn't improved and then I had to go back to the way I was. And I think I would have felt furious. I think yeah. it would have been fury above anything else and just feeling so angry at all these people who just didn't have to contend with I, with what I had to contend with mm. uh, to be part of something. 
how do we fix that? That's a big question. <laughs> but I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, what becomes relevant here is that that sort of idea of a social model of disability or a social mm. model of mental health that says uh, the problem here isn't you, you or me or either of our brains. The problem here is, is structures that are set up that mm. don't include everyone. So what would work for you? What sort of shifts would need to happen in the world of work for you or the world of community or socialising that would mean you could participate fully? The thing I would like most of all is not having to explain it. The thing that was so nice about COVID was that you didn't have to give a reason or an excuse as to why you couldn't go somewhere. And that was so liberating for me because I feel like I spend fully a quarter of my energy, my work energy, building up the courage to say to somebody, that's hard for me. I would rather that we did it a different way if we could, please. Because it's humiliating to say to someone, I'm a grown adult and I'm too scared to meet you over there. That's too far away from my house for me. And not being forced to do that was life-changing. People apologized to me. They were like, oh, sorry, I can't come and meet you or sorry, we can't meet at the office. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's, you're fine. No that's worries. Fine. No, I'm easygoing, all good. And yeah. I had never been able to do that before. I'm always the one who's apologizing. I mean, you came down to the beach to have, you know, to meet with me because I couldn't go to where you were. And mm. it is, it's embarrassing. And so it took away all of, that level of embarrassment, shame, the energy required to be ashamed and to, yeah, to ha find the, I don't know, not just like almost courage to overcome the shame to be able to say, I can't. When I didn't have to do that anymore, I had so much more time to do the things that I was actually good at. And so one of the things that I think yeah, it would be amazing for people with all sorts of accessibility needs is to not have to explain why we need them, to just be able to say, let's do it this way and not have to give any sort Answer of rationale a lot of questions. for it. Mm. Yeah. And then, I mean, just the things that feel obvious, but making events accessible, like having the option to stream them online. And that's not just for someone like me who's very agoraphobic, but, you know, someone who is immunocompromised who has to stay home for their own safety or someone who can't afford to travel or, I mean, it's not just the social model of this disability achieving those sorts of outcomes benefits everybody. And the thing that's so frustrating is that we saw during COVID that it can be done. Yeah. And I think you're right in the sense that there was that sense of rapid evolution when business mm. required people to be able to work from home, for example, you know, I think there's a large number of working mothers who'd been asking for that for a long, long time and, and it wasn't possible. And, and I think it's such an important lesson to sort of say, all right, let's not just shelve that horror that was the pandemic. Let's take a moment and say, what did we learn through that what process? And yeah. what, do we, what do we want to keep? Uh, what do we want to hold on to? Yeah. What has the reaction to the book been like? I've seen the public reaction, the what's in the newspapers, what the reviews look like, which are glowing and positive. But what's the reaction been like at an individual level with the people that you've met or heard from? It's been incredible because 
they have said the things that I didn't dare hope that they would say, which is this really helped me to feel better about myself. This helped me to communicate what I needed to somebody else better than I could before. I gave this to my dad. I gave this to my husband. I gave this to my child. I gave this to my psychologist. I've had quite a few emails from people who've said, I gave this to my psychologist so that they would understand me better because I haven't been able to communicate what I need to them. And I've been so frustrated at not being able to explain what I need or how I'm feeling. And now I have these new words to do it. The reviews, as you say, I mean, the reviews have been beautiful, amazing, but they have paled in comparison. I'm very grateful for them. They've paled in comparison to the positive impact that it seems to be having on people who need it. People like me were going, how do I help somebody else understand what I'm going through? It seems impossible. Getting a message that's like, this book changed my life is unparalleled. I don't even know what to say about that. Anna, congratulations. And thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with me on the weekend briefing. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for my conversation with Anna Spargo-Ryan. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff in that episode. And if you need to talk to someone about mental health, then you can always call Beyond Blue. They have counsellors available, ready, waiting to take your call. You can ring them on 1300 224636. Anna's new book is A Kind of Magic. It's part memoir, part dive into anxiety, minds, memory, time, love and optimism. It is absolutely beautiful and it's available at all good bookstores and online via Booktopia. Up next, The Weekend List. Don't go away. It is Weekend List time. Bron is here and Off Mike has declared to me that she always brings lowbrow recommendations while I bring highbrow recommendations and I take this praise joyously and I wear it with pride. I don't think it's true because sometimes my (laughs) recommendations are terrible trash, also wonderful trash. Anyway, Bron, this week, what trashy goodness have you got for us? So my first one is Below Deck Adventure on Hey You. It's about these ultra-rich people holidaying on a mega yacht in Norway To be honest, it's not as trashy as other Below Deck franchises have been. I will say that. It's kind of, I'd put it on another level. It's more of a travel show. You see this beautiful landscape of Norway, all the scenery. You know, it is beautiful. Um, It's just in its first season. So it's still coming out week to week at the moment. So there's not that many eps to catch up on if you do want to get into it. Um, Yeah, it's just beautiful and, of course, a little bit trashy. But I love it. I mean, I was expecting trashier. You totally sold me on that. I am I am always up for some luxury. Viewing other people's luxury uh, is something I am into. I want to recommend a way to give gifts this festive season. If you are someone who is celebrating Christmas, how to give gifts in a way that isn't just giving children lots of plastic and buying something for your dad that he's never going to like anyway, or something that your auntie's probably going to return or re-gift. I recommend heading to Plan International Australia's website. Plan International is the charity for girls and they have what they call gifts of hope and they are tangible examples of how your gift can support children, girls all over the world and break down barriers that mean that they can participate fully in life and grow up to live a meaningful, happy, healthy life as well. 
They will send you a really beautiful gift card and an envelope so you can literally give the gift to someone you care about. I'm an ambassador for Plan International and this year my family are going to be getting uh, the gift of helping a young woman in the developing world start her own business. They are going to be giving a girl a legal identity. So many young women in developing countries don't have a birth certificate and if you think about how restrictive that is in terms of travel, movement, freedom to make decisions for yourself, if you can't prove who you are, that is a problem. They have so many different options that you can choose to suit the person that you are gifting to. Uh, It's a really nice way to spend your money and a cause that very, very much needs your help. Oh, that's a lovely recommendation. Mine is also on the Christmas theme, but slightly different. It is Christmas Ransom on Stan. It's a Christmas movie (laughs) starring Matt O'Kine and Miranda Tapsell. Uh, Matt O'Kine's character runs this toy shop and he gets held ransom on Christmas Eve. Uh, Miranda Tapsell is like a pregnant security guard. She's trying to save the day with these two bratty kids that are also trapped inside with her. It's a lot of fun for the whole family. It's very silly, very goofy, and it will definitely help you get into the Christmas spirit if you are indeed celebrating. What do you want? 300000 in cash. Listen up, CEO, and you've got one hour. Or we start playing hangman. What's the sitch? Two kids, one man, and a pregnant woman. So it's time to save another Christmas. Let's go! That sounds so good. I love a Christmas movie, and some of my favourite actors are in that film you've just mentioned. So that is on my list. I might even watch it tonight. Folks, I have one more recommendation for you, and we're really getting into the festive theme here at the Weekend Briefing today. Mine is, of course, uh, edible gifts, folks, because Christmas is about food. That's what it's about. Some people think it's about religion. Some people think it's about being with family and love. It's not. It's about food. I've said it before. I say it again. On delicious.com.au, if you Google or search on the website edible presents, it will give you a list of 70 Yes, 70 incredible edible presents that you can give this year. Things you can make yourself so you can show how much you care about other people. You can eat some of the batter along the way so it's good for you too. And then you can do it up in some cellophane with a nice little bow and it makes a great way to give Christmas gifts that will be loved, adored, bring gratitude, will bring people something to eat and also not cause horribleness for the planet or you having to shell out a whole heap of money. There are a bunch of things on that website that I loved. Some are easy, some are medium, some are really hard. The dark chocolate and cherry truffles are super simple, will take you no time at all. If you want something a little bit more complicated, the fruit mince pies, you don't have to buy them, you can make them. And if you want something kind of in the middle, uh, then maybe you can have a look at the burnt honey and vanilla shortbread. All winners, all round. Happy Christmas to you. That's it from the Weekend Briefing today. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciated having your company. If you want to follow us in the listener app, that will mean that you get us in your feed all the time. I can't think of a better festive gift than that for this season. We will be back bright and early Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Listener.